Hey folks, this is Frank Reynolds, and this is The Lies People Tell. And today we're going to have a special guest on the program. We're going to have Gina Ciarcia. She's running for the 2nd District for the House of Delegates here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, where I live, in the northern part of Virginia. And I think it's important to try to highlight the people that are running at the local level. As I've said before, we've morphed into a a society where everything seems to be federalized, and that really is not the way the founders had it envisioned. And the states have a huge role, a much bigger role in the way we live than the federal government should have. And we need to support the candidates that are running at our local and state level. And this is part of my my mission is to help try to get people like Gina across the finish line and help them win their seats because we really need to get people in these seats that really have the best interest of you, your family, and supporting the life that you want to live the best way you possibly can. And right now, we're facing some daunting times in our country and at the state level, especially here in Virginia. And we need to turn that around. So uh, we're going to be talking to Gina, and we're going to discuss a bunch of different topics and try to give you a feel for where she stands at and hopefully give you some things to think about. So this is Gina Ciarcia, and she's with the 2nd District, or she's running for the 2nd District of the House of Delegates. Gina, how are you today? I'm well, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. So just by way of background, I'll let you uh, give a little background of who you are, where you're coming from, and uh, a little thumbscale sketch of why are you throwing your hat into the ring. Thanks. So my name is Gina Ciarcia. I am the wife of a retired Marine Corps officer. I'm the mother of five children, and I am a history teacher. And, uh, you know, I've been and lived in a lot of different places, being married to a Marine. We served our country. My husband uh, retired after 24 years of service. And it is disheartening to see where our country is at right now. You know, I have for the last 21 years that I've been married to this man, I have been sacrificing for America and I've been happy to do that. But it is truly a sacrifice when your uh, spouse is in the military. In fact, the whole family serves. My husband spent most of his career in special forces, which is really cool um, and sexy. But the other side of that is The man is gone a lot. And so that means time away from my husband and for my children, it's time away from their father. We're happy to sacrifice. But to see America in the current condition in which she is in is extremely disheartening when you think of literally all the years that dad, husband has been away from the family. I have five children, as I mentioned. Three of those are in their late teens, and they're getting ready to enter into this country as young adults. And I think back to how it was for me when I was their age in the mid-90s. And the country that we have right now is not the same country that I was given as a young person in the mid-90s. Now we're at a situation in our country where there is so much discord, division. There is not a sense of optimism, particularly amongst young people. And this is something that I notice not only with my own children, but since I'm a teacher, I I teach high school students, and I see it in them as well. Um, When I was a high school student graduating from high school and getting ready to go to college, I was so optimistic and so proud to be an American. There was no doubt in my mind that America was the best country in the world, and I was grateful to be a citizen of this country. And in fact, as a young person in college, I went on several mission trips 
one to Indonesia, another one to Azerbaijan. And throughout my life, I've also traveled to probably about a dozen different countries. And so you see the contrast and you see how much you have here in America and not just material prosperity, but you have freedom, you have liberty. If you're willing to work hard, you have the opportunity to succeed and be anything you want to be. And that is not the case in other places in the world. And so I felt like, well, Jeannie, you have two options. You can sit here on the couch and you can worry about the state of your country and be um, somewhat embittered or disappointed with how things are in light of the sacrifices that you've made. And you can worry about your children and your students or you can throw your hat into the ring and run for elected office at the local level. Because at the local level, that's really what affects us most closely and most intimately. Um, we get really wrapped up with the drama that goes on in D.C. And in the process of that, unfortunately, we often neglect what's going on locally. But I decided, you know what, I'm going to run for office. And uh, at least I can do my part because it, for me, it was about being able, for my husband and I, to be able to look our children in the face and with all seriousness and earnestness say, we have done everything we can possibly do to hand off to you a wonderful country that you're proud to be a part of that is in the best shape that it could be. My husband has fought abroad in wars overseas. My fight is here on the home front in the political arena. Wow. No, uh, that's inspiring. And, you know, it's not like that the uh, delegate seats make a mint by doing it. It's not that lucrative and there's a lot of sacrifices you have to make and a lot of extra work that you're putting on yourself to do it so hats off to you i mean I'm, I'm very impressed that you would even think that way because so many people talk a good game until it time comes up to having some skin in the game and actually doing something and then they sort of fade away so uh, you know that's mm -hmm. that's impressive that you're doing it and you know, I'm I'm former military. I actually have a, a son that's an active duty army officer, and I I fully agree with you. The spouses and the families serve also. There is no doubt about that because yeah. you don't do what your husband does and and be able to keep a marriage and a family together without everybody sacrificing and pulling together and keeping their eye on the prize, which is keeping the family together and moving forward, raising healthy and happy kids and having a good life. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's a tough world. And I can tell, you know, that you're in inherently a uh, servant leader because only a servant leader would even consider doing what you're doing. You want to serve people. You want to lead, but you want to serve people and help them make a better life. It's, I would think that that's an accurate assessment, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just about me and my kids. It's about the students that I teach. It's about the kids in my neighborhood. It's about the future generation. It's about my grandchildren. Because let's be honest, at this point in our country right now, um, a lot of us probably feel extremely concerned when we think about what will be the condition of our country for our grandchildren if we continue the path that we are on. Oh, absolutely. It's a little scary. It, it's very frightening. I mean, I've had, I've got two adult sons, but I also have a 14 year old daughter and my adult sons are doing great. They've got great careers and all that, but my 14 year old does not face the same world they did because the world has changed so drastically, so quickly and in many ways, not for the better. When my kids, right. my, my, my sons grew up, they didn't even have social media. Uh, mm -hmm. all of this stuff that your kids deal with now wasn't even a concern with them. And certainly when I grew up, I mean, but I grew up, you know, dinosaurs were still, you know, almost walk, walking the earth, but 
these kids today, they face, face so many different challenges and with what's going on in the schools and, and it's all over the news about CRT and Loudoun County and Fairfax and such as that. And we're going to get into that in a, in a few minutes, but this really is putting a strain on our families, but it's also putting a strain on our society as a whole. And mm -hmm. uh, it's like your husband is in the military uh, or he's retired from the military, but the this whole mentality of uh, we got to segregate everybody and divide people up based on their melatonin level, I think is so destructive to our society, the military, our schools. It's just, it is a horrendously bad thing that what's going on with that. Yeah, I agree. It's a resegregation and in no way is it, pro is it progress. It's not moving forward. It's really moving backwards. And it is detrimental. Uh, it, it kills unity. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that anyone can actually point to to say this is going to be the positive net effect of this because it's not only telling people, certain people, you're going to be oppressed, you can't get ahead, you can't win because these other people are holding you back and holding you down. And mm -hmm. for me, that is such a sad state of affairs. And it goes back to what you were talking about, the optimism level in America mm -hmm. and the optimism that you had and many people had going out and, you know, stretching their wings and flying in life. And they really are proposing that no one should be optimistic. And that's so counterproductive because if you don't have the right mindset you can't win. You can really f force yourself into being uh, downtrodden because you think you're downtrodden. Or you can mm -hmm. think, I can rise above this, and you can rise above it. Sure, yes. And, you know, um, as Americans, we're just known for our good work ethic, uh, which we really have the Puritans to thank for that in many ways because they saw work as a vocation, a calling uh, from God. It wasn't necessarily just a, a pastor or a preacher who was called by God, but if you were a carpenter or candlestick maker or a baker or a butcher, you know, it, that was your calling and you were to work at it as unto the Lord. And so, um, we inherited from those first uh, Puritans came over here in the 1600s. We inherited a good work ethic. In fact, if you look at Europe and if you look at where the Protestant Reformation, you know, had the most impact more in Northern Europe uh, than in Southern Europe, you'll see some of those same things that there tends to be more productive activities uh, in Northern Europe than there is in Southern Europe. And so we're now telling people it doesn't matter how hard you work. You can't get ahead because of systemic racism, because of these institutions that are inherently racist. So why even try? That's really the message you're sending. Right. I don't think that's the message we want to send to any person, any American of any color. Because America has been known for being the land of opportunity. And if you're willing to come over here and work hard, you can make it. My great-grandparents immigrated to America through Ellis Island um, from Italy, from southern Italy, from Calabria. And they came over here and they found an opportunity in Jacksonville, North Carolina, which if any of you are familiar with the Marine Corps, you'll know that that's the home of Camp Lejeune Marine Corps Base. Um, but they found an opportunity in that little town to open an Italian restaurant because there wasn't one. And so they did, and then they opened another and another. And before long, they had five restaurants in either Jacksonville or neighboring cities and they were called Marinos, Deli and Subs. Uh, one of them was called Luigi's. Another one was called The Rex. And they did well for themselves because 
they were creative, they were hardworking, they were innovative, they saw, uh, you know, a, a little piece where they could, where they could, you know, root themselves and they could make money and raise a family and flourish, and they did. Um, and that's what pe- why people come to America. You know, if, if America was so bad, Frank, why would so many people be dying to try and get here? Yeah, exactly, exactly. They wouldn't be beating down the doors to get in some place that's that horrible. You're exactly right. And it's right. and the it's interesting. You're talking about your immigrant uh, grandparents, and and it is one of those things where so many immigrants come to the United States from whatever country, whether it's Europe or Asia. And they make it. And why do they make mm-hmm. it? Because a, they think they have. They've just landed in the land of opportunity because they've been told that their entire life. America is the land of opportunity. So they come with the right mindset. B, they work their tails off to achieve their success, and they're never resting on their laurels, and they're never looking around saying, "Why doesn't somebody help me?" And those mm-hmm. two little ingredients, that mindset and that willingness to work hard, will make you successful. Will you be the king of the world? No. But you're going to be successful. You just have to understand what success is and have to define it in a realistic way for yourself. Right. Yeah. America is a land of hope. And CRT really just squashes the hope. It tells you that, you know, you're, you're up against these systemically racist institutions and you are victimized by them. And you're victimized um, unwittingly by any white person that you encounter through their microaggressions, which they don't even realize they're perpetrating against you. It's just, it's just a terrible ideology that is destructive in so many ways not just to the individual that holds that thinking and not just to the people around them, but to American society as a whole. And it puts people into these rigid categories. Um, It plays along very nicely with identity politics, um, but it's just a destructive um, way to, to think. It really is. And we, it's not something that we need to teach to our children. If anything, we need to show them the flaws in that system of thinking and how they can um, rebut it, really. And that's why it's so important that we have people like yourself running for these uh, seats at the state level. Because at that point, if we have enough right-minded people thinking together, they can actually, you know, pass laws and make sure that CRT is not being taught in our schools and CRT is not being foisted upon everybody in the state because that's where they're at. And I don't know if you saw the uh, statement from the uh, National Educators Association, the NEA, today, but they basically said we are going to provide training and resources to help people push back on anyone or any organization that criticizes CRT. So, I mean, the teachers union, uh, and you're a teacher, uh, the teachers union are pushing for this. And I'm really, I'm kind of confused why they would do that. Why, why do you think that they're pushing for that? Well, I've never taught in public school. I've always taught in either homeschooling with my own children or in a private school setting. And those schools that I've taught in have been classical Christian schools. So I don't know a lot about teachers' unions other than I can say the NEA is highly politicized. Yes. So they always have a political agenda that they're, um, that they're motivated by. I... Other than to create division, I cannot understand why they would want to teach this and train teachers in how to teach this to our children. I thought we were supposed to be 
teaching our children reading, writing, and arithmetic. Yes, and and we've <laughs> we've steered away from that, uh, unfortunately, to uh, to a lot of other areas that are far less helpful and is not going to get any kid any job or anywhere in in a decent college. You're exactly right. Speaking of that, mm-hmm. in in I know that you're. Uh, a history buff, and you taught history. How, for you and for me, I, I, history was always one of my favorite subjects. It still is to this day. I'm just fascinated by it because it tells a story of what happened, but it's so intertwined with everyday life that we have now, and civics goes along with it. How do you think history is being really taught in our public schools now, and where where are they going wrong with that? Well, I think they are framing our American history, particularly um, as a uh, unsavory and sordid and outright evil history that American school children should be ashamed of, and that's not true. You know, in the schools where I have taught, we've we've taken a classical approach to the way we teach history. And so in ninth grade, I teach ninth graders ancient history. And then 10th graders, I teach medieval. And then 11th and 12th grade, we alternate between modern European and American history. So in the span of their high school years, they get all the history from the the very beginning, from creation uh, the earliest historical records, you know, we're, we're talking about things like Hammurabi's Code. Um, and then we, we end up, uh, by the end of it, at the, um, this year we got to Vietnam and Watergate with my seniors, so the 1970s. That helped to put the whole span of human history and Western civilization, you know, in a, in a way that students can see all of the connections and they have a much better understanding. I know whenever I was a student in high school, we did not study history that way. It was so much more disjointed and really confusing and you couldn't understand, you never saw the connection between events and you didn't understand what it had to do with you being an American citizen either. So it wasn't very enjoyable, honestly, the way I was taught history as a high schooler. But I can say the way that I teach students now, it is really exciting. And it, and it just opens up your eyes to how, um, how far man has come and the accomplishments of Western civilization. And it's, it's really fascinating, truly. Yeah, no, it, it really is. And, you know, just to think, as you said, how far man has come, just look at from the time of the, the Wright brothers' flight to when we went to the moon is less than 70 years. And look at the advances yeah. that had to take place from that Balta Wood plane to a lunar module and it really is fascinating and time and technology just keeps speeding along but we're all Mm -hmm. we all have to understand what's happened in the past as they say or we're bound to repeat it and i see a lot of things going on today's society is this this is not new these things happened before just in a different time but we Mm -hmm. have a tendency our leaders have a tendency not to understand history or understand uh, uh, how it applies to today's events. And they continue to make the same stupid mistakes we've made in the past. And I don't know if it's because they're, they don't understand history or they just don't understand human behavior and how people react to motivations and disincentives and incentives. But it really Mm -hmm. is shocking. I see some of the things going on and say that's happened before. And I know they always say, well, you can't make reference to, you know, Germany in the 30s. Okay, all right. But I can tell you, there are a lot of things that happen now that actually took place in Germany in the 30s. I mean, my mm-hmm. father-in-law was, and my father-in-law and mother-in-law 
what is German. They lived in Germany. They went through World War II. I've talked to them. They've told me stories. You know, if they say, mm-hmm. "Well, you can't make a comparison," well, I can only I can't make it only because maybe it hits a little too close to home. I don't know. Yeah, you know, um, I think it just makes people uncomfortable and, and worried whenever you say that. But it's true, and and we need to be good students of history. It's really important. You know, the Roman historian Polybius said that the best preparation for political life was the study of history. And I think there's multiple reasons for that. One, you get a really clear picture of human nature. And you see that although circumstances change and technology changes, human beings and their nature and their behavior really does not. It is consistent throughout the centuries. (laughs) Okay. So I think you get a clear picture of human nature. And you also see how, um, you know, events do repeat themselves. Uh, and you you can see, like you were pointing out, red flags. Like, oh, I've read about this. I remember studying this, and I'm seeing the same thing. And that should, you know, if you're a student of history, you should be able to, to read that. I think also, too, in politics, you know, you're, uh, and I, I don't really like the term politician because I, I think it sounds kind of creepy. Um, and yeah. I never, I dreamed of being many things as a, as a young girl, but politician was never one of them. <laughs> I can <laughs> yeah. promise you. Yeah. Um, but I, I do prefer the idea of statesmanship. And I, I think really, especially at the point where we're at right now here as Americans, and you look at our founding fathers and, and what they did, and then notable people from history who, who made a really big impact in a good way, right? So men like, you know, like Churchill, or if you want to go back even further, you know, Cicero, they said true and remarkable things. So as someone who's now having to speak in front of people often, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I read a lot of history, obviously, but I also read a lot of speeches. Elvin Coolidge gave a fantastic speech um, for the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And I just read that one a couple of weeks ago. You don't have to come up with new things. You just have to digest what's already been said and internalize it, and then it will come out of you. And it will inspire the people now just like it inspired the people back then, whether it was Cicero or, you know, uh, one of our presidents, maybe Lincoln, you know, or even... um, Augustine, you know, from the more medieval period or um, others, you know, there, there's just so many things that have already been said and done. You just need to take what has been done well and right and keep doing it. Yeah. And there's a reason why we still quote those people. And it's not because they just had catchy phrases is because they were speaking immutable truths that still apply to today's society. Even if it was quoted a thousand years ago, those were immutable Mm -hmm. truths that anyone would say, yep, that's right. You know? And so that's why we still quote those people. And Mm -hmm. and when you speak of Coolidge, Coolidge is one of the best presidents and it gets so little play with people but people would do well to go back in and study his presidency and study what he said and what he stood for he was really a quite remarkable president that does not get nearly the credit that he deserves in in history i agree yeah um he was steady consistent a real true conservative who understood his principles and stood by them. And another 
thing to his credit, I believe, was that he was not an ambitious man because he did not run for re-election when he could have. Um, but he said, you know what, I did my duty, and now I'm, I'm out. He got out just in time because uh, I, in 1999 we had the, the crash, right, of the stock market and the beginning of the Great Depression. So maybe he, he exited just in time, but uh, you see that he was not after his own gain. Um, contrast him with a man like Julius Caesar, who was incredibly ambitious and very selfishly motivated. He went down in history, but he went down for many of the wrong things. So it's good to study those individuals, and you can pick ones like Coolidge, and you can say, you know what? Coolidge was right on. I want to emulate him. What did he do? What did he say? Um, or wow, there's some cautionary things that I should take away from the story of Julius Caesar. How can I avoid some of the pitfalls? Do I see some of those selfish ambitions in myself? Am I really seeking to serve the people or am I seeking for my own glory? So that's why we need to study history too. It helps us to learn who to emulate and who you know, to take some warnings from so that we don't fall into the same traps that they did. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a, you know, we have way too many politicians that live and die for their seat in Congress or wherever. And that truly is their sole driving motivation. It's not serving the people, not serving their constituency or making sure good things happen. It's about getting reelected and then they'll play a little, you know, lip service on the off election year where they're not running full time. But in reality, we all know they just hang on to their power because they want to hang on to their power. And I'm so done with these guys because I want, we, I don't know that I'm in favor of term limits per se, because there's some pluses to it, but there's also some minuses, but I am mm-hmm. in favor of trying to elect people like Coolidge, who say, okay, I've done my job. Now I need to move on and let someone else have a chance. We don't have that in politicians anymore, unfortunately. No. It's extremely rare to come by it. And uh, that's that's unfortunate for us. I mean, (laughs) you know, it's like you, well, I mean, let me just put it like someone like Nancy Pelosi, uh, if if she could take a serum and live for another 100 years, she would live another hundred years in Congress. She never ever wants to give up that seat. Not because she's accomplishing really anything and not that she needs the money or the glory or whatever. She's going to go down in history. It's about power. It's about that, that something they get from being in charge. And you know, that, that can be very intoxicating, but mm-hmm. it can be your downfall too. hubris came about thousands of years ago, but hubris still applies to today. Sure. Yeah. And that goes back to understanding human nature. Yes. Now now let's, uh, let's switch gears for a second because you're in Northern Virginia, like I am. And for anyone that doesn't live in Northern Virginia, we have some of the worst traffic anywhere. I mean, I would stack up our traffic against, uh, New York city, Houston, LA, any of those big places we've, we can compete with them because we have some horrendous traffic. What, what is your take on, uh, the traffic situation? We got 95 that runs right through here. We're in the 95 corridor. Uh, what kind of ideals or what, what are your thoughts on the transportation, public transportation, the traffic here in this area and things that maybe could be done to help alleviated or something that maybe they haven't tried that they should look at trying. Yeah. Traffic is a big issue. It's a big issue all over Northern Virginia. My district runs um, through Prince William County. It's actually parallel with, with 95. And we have many people in my district, which is not just um, the Eastern strip of Prince William County, but also the Northern part of Stafford County as well. So many folks in the district work in D.C., which means they're commuting five days a week. Now, COVID has 
had the benefit of alleviating traffic for a good while, but now we're really picking back up again. More people, though, I think have seen and employers and bosses have seen that we can do some teleworking from home and maybe folks only need to come into the office two or three days a week, which is great uh, if you're thinking in regards to traffic. So what are some options? Well, we're a bit limited uh, in our district because there has been so much development that there's really no room to put any more roads because of the development of neighborhoods and um, townhome communities and whatnot. All those, um, all those people have multiple cars, right? Usually if you have a home, you're going to have at least two cars that are going along with that home with the people that live there. Right. But we do have actually the Virginia Railway Express, the VRE, which has multiple stations right along the district. Um, and there's one station in particular, the Potomac Shores station, that has the construction for that has been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back years now. And so getting that construction actually started so that we can open up that station will help. Also, the VRE has limited transit time because they they lease the tracks from um, CSX. And so we need to be able to increase the frequency of trips that the VRE takes into D.C. That would help alleviate some of the situation. Yeah. More teleworking and more commuter lots as well. So a lot of folks will do they'll take public transit. So they'll take the bus and they park in a commuter lot and they take the bus into DC or pre COVID, especially people would slug, which just means that you would, you know, have several people in some, a personal vehicle who are going to the same place. Maybe they're all going to the Pentagon and they just ride together up to the Pentagon. So you'd have a lot of people that would slug because when you have the, um, you know, three or more people, then you can use the hot lanes for, free and it's uh, quicker and it's free. Um, COVID has changed people's um, willingness to slug and to ride in another individual's uh, car. But um, we are we're limited with what kinds of public transportation we, we can have because of the amount. We can't build more roads really because of all the houses in the area, but we can build some more commuter lots so that we can have easier access to that public transportation. Yeah. This is especially important since Stafford is growing um, really very quickly, and they're expecting a real population growth in Stafford County. Stafford doesn't have sufficient lots to accommodate the people that live in Stafford who are coming into D.C. So what happens is those folks from Stafford will come up to Prince William and use the lot here in Prince William County. Pre-COVID, the commuter lot just down the street from my house, if you didn't get to that lot and get parked by 6 a.m., you were not going to find a parking space in that commuter lot. So Stafford needs more commuter lots, so they're not putting a strain on the lot in Prince William. There's also plans for a commuter garage to be built up here in Prince William uh, near the Stonebridge Shopping Center, and that will help too. Um, we sometimes think about bringing the metro um, down into Prince William County. Right now, the closest metro stop to us is the Franconia Springfield stop, which is about a 30-minute drive away if traffic is moving. Right. Um, so that would be a long-term uh plan that we would have to look at very closely, particularly the Prince William County um, Board of Supervisors. Metro has a lot of strings attached to it and is not um, in the best of financial shape. They often uh, have to be propped up, sometimes even with federal money. So that's something that we have to look at really closely. You know, I know a lot of 
folks in Prince William would love to have a metro stop close by in Quantico, but that would be something that would have to be seriously considered, and it would be also be a very long-term project. Yeah, that would be down the road quite a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. I uh, I travel actually to D.C. on a daily basis. I take the VRE up, and uh, it's a long commute either way, mm-hmm. but at least with the VRE, I get on the train, I can read, I can write, I can think, I can sleep. Uh, it's an easy commute in that respect. And uh, people, a lot of people before COVID used uh, that train. It really hauled a lot of people. It's picking up now, but we're still probably at 25% of what we were pre-COVID as far as mm-hmm. uh, people using it. And it could be partly, a lot of it I think is a lot of people are still working from home. Uh, and you know, in this area, if they can work from home, let them work from home because that's, it's good for everybody in that respect. Yes, it is. Um, and like you said, with the VRE, you know, you can, you can just get on the train and then you can do what you need to do until you get to your destination. Whereas when you're driving, that is not the situation at all. Oh, um, people, people do tend to prefer their own vehicle versus public transportation um, in general. But realistically, we just can't have everybody on the road every day. The, uh, you know, currently 66 is being widened. um, And that's a huge project and a very expensive project. That is not an option for our strip of 95 here through Prince William. So we're going to have to look at other um other ways to get people to work and back yeah and and they you know people have to think outside the box sometimes so like i said i think it's a good advent uh for more people to be able to telework and i think it makes them many times happier it uh, keeps Mm -hmm. the congestion down uh keeps the uh carbon footprint down a little bit and uh it just uh, overall i think it's a good thing if you can take mm-hmm. the if you can take public transportation, you know I, the metro is uh, an experience unto itself. But the VRE <laughs> is actually quite nice. I mean, it's it's quiet. Yeah. They they're very efficient, and I agree with you. They should uh, have a few more uh, runs in the morning and the afternoon to give other people options. And uh, I know that Potomac Landing. They've been dealing with that for a long time, and it doesn't seem like a lot of progress is being made there, unfortunately. None. None has been made. I, You know, you go out there to where the station is supposed to be, and all <laughs> there's a big sign that says VRE, and that sign has been there for years, you know, yeah. and no, not the first bit of construction has begun on that. It's been uh, a bit of a struggle, but there's several entities involved in that and it's difficult to get everybody to work together to get the groundbreaking started and construction moving yeah yeah all right Mm -hmm. uh in a short a little bit of time we have left because i don't want to keep you here for all day i want to talk to you a little bit about uh policing and public safety and i know the big push has been which for me being a former retired law enforcement is the craziest idea in the world is we're done defund the police and everybody will be safer. I mean, it's so counterintuitive and it does, it's not even ba- It's not based in reality because that's not how the real world works. What, what is your thoughts on policing and public safety? Yeah, I think this goes back to having an accurate view of human nature. Um, given the opportunity, many people will, commit a crime or break the law if they know they can get away with it. Um, You know, I believe it was Madison who said in one of the Federalist Papers, if men were angels, there would be no need for government. Right. Um, But we are not angels, and so we have to be governed. And we have to be restrained from doing evil and doing wrong to our neighbor. And so one of those restraints is law. Law keeps us from doing things that are wrong, that are harmful to others. And if that law is not enforced, however, 
then people are apt to break it if they know that it's not enforced and they can get away with it. And so who is our law enforcement? Well, that's our police. So if we defund the police, who will then enforce the law? And if you are expecting criminals to self-regulate themselves and control and restrain themselves, you have a very loose grip on reality. So there are certainly some ways that we can go about reforming police, increasing the training, giving them better training. There's always room for improvement. There's always room for more training. I was married to a Special Forces Marine for a long time. I can tell you about training. (laughs) (laughs) They train and they train and they train again, and then they train some more and some more. That requires time and it requires money. So if you want a well-trained police force, you have to fund them. And if you want people to sign up to be a law enforcement officer, to police your community, if you want the best and the brightest to be police officers, then don't demoralize the job. They, um, when you say that all police officers, when you just lump them together and you say all, police officers are inherently bad or racist or they have a racial agenda. Um, this is this is not the way to attract good police officers. In fact, you know, our um, our daughter in the past has talked about, you know, she's She's in her teens, and so she's thinking about things that she might want to do when she grows up, and police officer was one of those. I can tell you after last summer and the the rioting of 2020, as parents, we cautioned her against going into that profession. Um, And I think many other parents probably did the same thing with their sons or daughters that were expressing a desire to be a police officer, it was really think hard about that one, honey. Yeah. Look at what's going on. And she, too, looked at it, and, you know, I think she thought twice about it because police officers are being called pigs and they're being spat on and screamed at and um, accused of awful things that they have not done. And... You're, you're just not going to attract uh, high-quality um, law enforcement that way. Well, and your communities are going to suffer. And, and one of the worst things that they've done is to do away with qualified immunity. And for uh, the audience that doesn't understand what that is, qualified immunity for law enforcement is the protection you have when you're doing your job, performing your official duties, not to be sued in frivolous lawsuits and be held personally liable for your actions. Meaning you arrest someone, they don't like the fact you arrested them. So they decide to, uh, file a frivolous lawsuit stating that you called them a bad name and you didn't call them a bad name. You can prove it, but they can take you to court and sue you personally. With qualified immunity, they can't sue you as the individual personally. They can sue the agency you belong to, but you are not going to be on the hook per se as long as you're doing your official duty. When they did away with that, every cop can be sued multiple times over frivolous stuff that will never be proven, but the process is the punishment. They financially break you for defending yourself and what sane person would say, yes, sign me up to do that job where I can have my whole life ruined because somebody decides to ruin my life and and can do it for little or no cost on their part. Right. Exactly. And, And just the idea of being dragged into court over something 
trivial, frivolous, um, and then having to spend money to defend yourself in court, to protect you and your family from losing everything. No one will sign up for that. And then add to that the physical danger that you're put in being on the job and then being derided by elected officials <laughs> yeah, demonized. No one <laughs> demonized yes. sometimes. Yes, and turned into a villain when your whole purpose. Because I imagine that people who sign up to be police officers want to serve their community. That is a major motivation because the salary is not the motivation. It is the opportunity to serve your community, to give back, you know, to, to, be, um, to be of service. And uh, you put so much, you just make it really challenging to find good people. Well, and uh, I, don't, I don't think people would be willing to do it. No. And, you know, I, I, you know, I served in the army for 10 years and, you know, I was you know, FBI agent for 20 plus years. And I can tell you, and I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of cops, state and local level. And I, just like the military, you generally don't join it because you're going to get rich. You join it for a lot of other different reasons. You want to serve, you want the camaraderie, you want the community, you want to be pursuing a a goal bigger than yourself and just earning an extra buck. It's, it's more than that. It's a lifestyle. It's not just a job. And mm -hmm. they've, they've taken it and made it so unpalatable that uh, it's no longer a job or a lifestyle anyone can have and, and really survive it because it's just, it has been become untenable and it's a, it's a shame. And, and as they say, you don't like policing now, keep defunding the police and see what the policing is going to be like in 10 years. Cause that's when it'll really take effect. The lack of money for training, the lack of money to hire professional people and to keep them professionally trained and up to speed to do their job. Well, you think we got bad policing now defund them and see what the policing will be like in 10 years. It'll be like Mad Max at that point. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it, this is the, it's the craziest things, but it's people saying that, that a, they don't, they've know nothing about policing and how it works. B, they have no interest in learning it and C, they have an ulterior motive that they're not talking about. And, uh, it's not for the good of the community as a whole. My wife was a, right. a social worker for many years and the fact that the ideal that a social worker is going to go out there and deal with an armed person or someone's violence. I can tell you this, that ain't happening. And social workers don't want to do that. I mean, that's not what they signed up to do either. So let's be mm -hmm. realistic. That just, once again, it goes back to human nature. You can't, <laughs> it just doesn't work in this, this world that they're contriving it doesn't exist. Bad guys are bad guys because they see the opportunity and they see no downside for doing it. Once they, mm -hmm. there's a downside, like you're going to prison and it's going to be a very unpleasant thing. They decide maybe I won't do that. I mean, that's the incentive. That's the disincentive. That's how people are motivated. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's sure. crazy. So Okay. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people, too, don't realize actually how good our policing is here in America. <laughs> there are many other countries. If something, if there's an emergency situation, the last people you want to show up are the police because you're going to have to bribe them and pay them off, and they're, they're really more like a, a you know, uh, more like the enemy, you know, more like criminals. And that's how policing is in a lot, many parts of the world. And actually here in America, we, it's, it's amazing. If your house is on fire, you can call three digits, 911, and there will be, you know, people there within minutes to help you. That is not the case in the majority of the world's places. Oh. You're on your own yeah. and good luck. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you are exactly right. You're exactly people don't people don't know how good they have it until they've traveled to a lot of places overseas. I've been all over the world, some great places and some really not great places. And I can tell you, you think you got a bad here? Let me take you to a couple of countries I've been to. Brother, you mm-hmm. ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, come on. So Right. Well, all yeah. right. Uh so we're running short on time. I want to get a couple uh, little things in here. So right now, uh, Candy King is the delegate in the, the second district. She's a pretty left-wing Democrat. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're, you're looking to unseat her. Give me a thumb. Yeah. Just give me the, your elevator pitch to the people of why you would do better in that position, why you want that position and what can you do to make people to make a, just the, the, the pitch of why you want this job and why they should vote for you. Okay. Well, if you feel like the is headed in the right direction and you're excited about going over the cliff into the abyss, then you should keep Candy King as your delegate in the second district. But if you're seeing red flags, you're concerned and you're worried and you're not comfortable with the direction that Virginia and America in general is going into, then you need a change in this seat. And I am the person that needs to be there instead of Miss King. Miss King is a far left progressive Democrat. She is a lever puller for the Democrats. She will caucus with them and pull the lever or push the button, whatever you want to say, every single time. She is not interested in policy that promotes um, family. In fact, the Virginia Family Foundation, every couple of years they put out their score report card where they essentially grade our state legislators on how they voted on policy in light of the family. And they score them out of 100. Miss King had the honor of being only one of four state legislators in the General Assembly that scored zero out of 100 points. Wow. That means none of her votes were pro-family. So if you want a delegate that is for the family, that is for Virginians who wants to help create in Virginia a situation where you can live and work and raise a family in peace and have opportunity and have your children educated and not indoctrinated, then you should vote for Gina Garcia. And you can go to my website, which is Gina, G-I-N-A, for spelled out F O R Virginia also spelled out dot com. So Gina for Virginia dot com is uh, the address of our website and there you can learn more about me and my background. Beautiful, beautiful. No, that's exactly right. And I'll uh put that uh, in the show notes, uh the your link to your website so people can go to it. Uh and I think it's important that People, everyone needs to remember the best government is the government that's closest to the people because they're the most held accountable and you can hold them accountable. That's why you're seeing the groundswell at the uh, level, local level with school boards. They can be held accountable. They can be recalled. They can be voted out. Same thing with the delegates. Same thing with your state senators. This is what we have to do if we want to make sure we take back our country and not go off into the abyss, as Gina says. We have to support people like Gina. Uh, Gina, I I want to thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I found uh, what you said. I think it was an interesting conversation, and I like uh, the fact that you're actually looking back to the past to, to see how the future can be molded, and I think that's important. I don't think we do enough of that in today's society. So. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. And if you ever get, have a chance again, you know, if you want to come back on when it gets closer to the election, feel free, you know, and we will be more than happy to put you back on. 
Yeah, I'd love that. Thank you for the invitation, and I'll take you up on that, Frank. All right. So, Gina, just hold on, and uh, I'll uh, put you on mute, and I'm going to close out the show, and then we can talk afterwards. So just hold on. Okay, folks. So, as I said, please take a look at uh, Gina's website. Check her out and see what you can do to support her and spread the word. Even if you're not uh, a person in Virginia, you know someone in Virginia, especially here in the northern uh area northern part of virginia reach out to them tell them about this episode tell them about gina and uh let's let's push this forward because we we cannot allow uh what's going on with our states and our countries and our local jurisdictions just go unheeded that's what they're hoping for we're not going to do that and uh i thank you for joining me as always uh subscribe Share this with your friends, and uh, I will talk to you guys next week.